Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. And it's November 23rd, 2017. On this Thanksgiving episode, why this is a critical moment for net neutrality, how productions are being affected by the industry's six-gate onslaught, the best Black Friday deals for filmmakers, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. First of all, happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners. It is today. If your family has a tradition of movie watching as they revel in their post-stuffing food comas, we've got a great article up for you that might change your holiday watch list up. Oakley Anderson Moore compiled a list called 11 Brilliant Native American Films to Watch This Thanksgiving, and it celebrates a big part of the Thanksgiving equation. As she says in the post, forget the overcooked turkey, what you need this holiday is a dose of creativity from some of the coolest indigenous filmmakers in North America. Bam. So jumping into headlines, we are kicking off with an important story that we've been following since the beginning of this podcast— the fate of net neutrality. The Obama-era rules have looked doomed since President Trump took office and vowed to overturn them, but this week, Federal Communications Commission Chairman Ajit Pai officially unveiled plans to fully dismantle the net neutrality regulations. Their proposal will be voted on at the FCC's December 14th meeting, where it's expected to be approved. Here's what's really scary, especially for those of us making media. The repeal plan not only rolls back the existing rules, it goes further, specifically permitting broadband carriers to block media content, which has not ever been the case in the history of the Internet. We've talked before about how giving these companies the power to slow down and speed up streaming content to give preferential treatment to certain sites might hurt independent filmmakers and businesses. But imagine if any content can just be blocked indiscriminately. I was expecting at least a fuck from Charles. Oh yeah, no. I was. I was. I'm assuming there's going to be a lot more fuck moments as this post goes on. Hashtag fuck moments. Okay, I'm. I'm going on. So this obviously affects creators even more greatly than the average citizen. Comedian, TV host, and social critic W. Kamau Bell recently wrote in the New York Times about how the internet's become one of the main paths to popular and commercial success for newcomers in the media and entertainment worlds because of the potential for independently produced videos to go viral. But he warned that this could all go away without net neutrality rules that, quote, ensure that anyone who puts something on the Internet has a fair shot at finding a life-changing audience, end quote. The other thing I hadn't considered before this round is that if the plan passes, Internet companies will be able to sell access to different sites in bundles just like they do with network TV. So you'll no longer be able to pay one price to access any site you want. For example, a person could buy a package for access to only big sites like Yahoo and Amazon and never have the opportunity to find out that your horror film streaming on Fandor even exists. It's very generous of you to include Yahoo and the big sites. That was really nice. It's funny you said that because we don't think of it as a big site anymore since it's sort of been on its road to failure for so many years. But actually, because of its many years of legacy content, it's still one of the most trafficked sites on the Internet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, take that me being a snarky dick about Yahoo. No, I had the, I went through the same process. That's why I looked it up. Anyways, I personally, I got to say, I don't understand how this is a partisan issue. Like, if you don't want huge corporations to be able to control what you see and do on the Internet, you should want to keep the net neutrality rules in place. 
even if you're not generally into government regulation, wouldn't you rather have the government regulating companies than companies regulating you? And then the most infuriating thing about all of this is that in North America, the FCC has a public comment process, right? So we're all allowed to go on the FCC site and comment. But as John Oliver pointed out, it's really hard to find. Like he had to include a link on his website because they make it very difficult to find. And as the New York Attorney General is fighting right now, so the FCC during the summer review process decided that a whole bunch of public comments were actually invalid because they were um, made with faked identities. And a lot of those faked identities were in New York. So the New York Attorney General was like, hey, FCC, can we get all records of these faked identities so we can make sure New Yorkers are not being faked? And the FCC refuses to comply with the investigation and just threw out the comments but refuses to provide any proof that any of those people were fake. And then this morning... Mr. Pie, you're an asshole, announced that he's actually decided that because all of the public comment doesn't have a firm legal basis, it's all invalid. And they are only accepting public comment that has a nuanced legal argument for why this shouldn't be the case. And the fact that 22 million people have contributed commentary on this. And like, I don't actually know the real number, but I'm sure it's like 80 to 90 percent are like, please keep net neutrality. Does not matter at all. It is so really at this point the only thing you can do is go to your representative and have your representative try and lean on the FCC because they clearly are not listening. Like whether whoever you voted for, whatever you care about, we all want to be able to watch the stuff and read the stuff we want to watch on the internet and post the stuff. And post the stuff without you know the cable companies and the internet slowing down certain people and speeding up other people. And it's this is like one of those things that's so clearly in every citizen's best interest and just being fucked up by like four big Internet corporations. Like, do you love your Internet service? You probably don't. Do you want it to get worse? You probably don't. Oh, this is so infuriating. All right, folks, you heard it here. This is your last chance. You have until December 14th to contact your representatives about this. We will put a link on the podcast post for how to do so. And if it does happen, uh, might I recommend now is the time to buy MoviePass, six ninety five a month, and you'll be able to go see all movies you want without having to be censored by the government. Anyway, one thing I'm thankful for this Thanksgiving is that we managed to have an entire episode last week and two weeks before without a sexual assault-related headline. But unfortunately, the hits keep coming. Bada-bam! There have been so many high-profile charges flying in every industry, but I'm going to mention a few that have directly impacted the film and TV business in recent weeks with real ramifications. Beginning with, believe it or not, there's still more to the story that opened these floodgates, the torrid tales of Mr. Harvey Weinstein. Earlier this month, The New Yorker magazine, which originally broke the Weinstein allegations, revealed detailed evidence that Weinstein hired private detectives and spy firms, yes, there are spy firms, to compile dossiers full of dirt specifically intended to discredit and target anyone that he was afraid might expose his pattern of sexual abuse to the public. So these things, like the dossiers, are even more cuckoo pants than you might think, and really like something you might expect out of, well, a movie. I'll give just one example. Rose McGowan, who indeed has become one of Weinstein's most vocal accusers, her dossier was over 100 pages long. 
One of the tactics Weinstein used to compile this was to have an operative pose as a women's rights advocate, like how rich is that, and potential investor in McGowan's production company. This woman befriended the actress, pressed her for personal information about her life, and reported back to Weinstein. Holy fuck, that's dark. Like, what? I mean, this movie's definitely going to get made. In an interesting turn of events, Maria Contreras Sweet, former head of the U.S. Small Business Administration for the Barack Obama administration, (laughs) has put in a $275 million bid to buy the company, which includes a plan to leave 51% of the Weinstein Company controlled by women. There are other sharks swimming in the purchasing tank, like MGM and Lionsgate, but according to Deadline, Contreras Sweet's offer would be hard to beat. But wait, there's more! I can't put it any better than this Adweek headline. Sexual harassment allegations upended the two shows that put Netflix and Amazon on the map. Yes, both House of Cards and Transparent face uncertain futures after multiple sexual harassment allegations against their lead actors, Kevin Spacey and Jeffrey Tambor, respectively. Both have been removed from the shows, and given that the series center entirely around their characters, the shows will likely not survive. Speaking of uncertain futures, we were already a little skeeved out about the premise of Louis C.K.'s TIFF premiering new feature, I Love You, Daddy, about the seduction of C.K.'s character's 17-year-old daughter by an esteemed filmmaker and rumored pedophile who's four times her age. But then, long-whispered rumors about C.K.'s own questionable behavior began to surface in the form of explicit accusations, mostly having to do with him jerking off in front of women uninvited in professional situations. Now, release of the film, which was purchased by The Orchard at TIFF for five million bucks and was supposed to have hit theaters earlier this month, has been delayed indefinitely. He has to give that five million back, right? There has to be something in your contract that says, if you make such a public ass of yourself and are such a terrible person, like lawyers are good at this, the money has to be given back. Because if this fucks The Orchard, that sucks. Yeah, but distributors get screwed all the time for all kinds of reasons. Although now that you mention it, one of the ramifications or sort of like fallouts from all of this might be that that kind of clause gets written in in the future. Interesting. And to be clear, it sucks way more for CK's victims than it does for The Orchard. I just like any indie distributor. It's such a tough racket. Yeah, but I think that's part of the point I was going to mention later. The Orchard is a victim, too. Yeah. The fallout from these accusations ends up being so much bigger. It really has huge ripples in our industry because it means that movies that people worked really hard on don't get released. It means that shows that people thought they were signed up for for three more seasons fire them because they, you know, the show like folds. So it's really it's very problematic. You get to the thing about the animator from Cops. Oh, gosh. So Louis C.K. is one of the two voices for this TV show, animated TV show about cops, and they shut down the show. This animator posted a very like this is the day we're leaving this job. I really love this job note on Instagram. And it's like, he ends it well. He's like, look, I am still glad that this all came out, but I just want everybody to, like, it sucks for everyone. Like, we all just lost our job. And it's like, ah. Oh. For sure. Even Wonder Woman herself is not immune to these issues, but some would consider Gal Gadot's recent actions the stuff of superheroes. Stepping back, Brett Ratner's production company, Rat Pack Dune Entertainment, co-financed the insanely successful Wonder Woman movie with Warner Brothers. Recently, Ratner, who was already a notorious scumbag, was officially and publicly accused of sexual misconduct by six actresses with allegations including rape. Godot then pulled out of a gala where she was supposed to present Ratner with an award and ultimately threatened to drop out of a Wonder Woman sequel unless Ratner was completely removed from the 
involvement in the franchise. It was the classic him or me situation, and in a testament to how things might be changing in the industry, they chose her. Last week, it was confirmed that Ratner is out, and Godot will again get the opportunity to wow us all as Wonder Woman. That one story seems to have a happy ending, at least for Godot and Ratner's accusers, but most recently, and I would say rather heartbreakingly, Master interviewer and CBS This Morning anchor Charlie Rose was fired from CBS and PBS on Monday after an avalanche of sexual misconduct allegations over decades surfaced. And on Tuesday, Pixar founder John Lasseter announced a six-month leave of absence from the company after what he called, quote, missteps in a company-wide letter. Company employees called those missteps grabbing, kissing, and making inappropriate comments about physical attributes. Charlie Rose and Pixar? Seriously? Is nothing sacred? Ah. Of course, one of the really unfortunate short-term fallouts for all of this, for our listeners especially, is what we were just talking about. It's how many people will be out of work as these various productions and companies get shut down or reorganized. The good news is that hopefully this means that when you get your next gig, the set might be a more pleasant place with less sleaze bags. So to come full circle, I'm thankful on this Thanksgiving to know that you in the No Film School community are taking these stories to heart and working to make your sets and production offices safe and respectful for everyone. And speaking of Thanksgiving, man, the day after Thursday is what we in America call Black Friday. Charles? After all of that disgusting, terrible news, let's take a shower in the warm, pleasing bath of, like, capitalism and technology. (laughs) Oh, Um, man. Well... (laughs) I mean, that net neutrality thing is pretty uh, the worst uh, oh, God. offender there for capitalism. but And technology isn't great either. But whatever, let's talk about deals. So, Black Friday is a complicated time. On the one hand, no one should ever die in a stampede trying to buy their loved one's Christmas gifts. Like, that's not a good system. On the other hand, filmmakers are almost always trying to save any penny they can. And Black Friday, frankly, is a great way to do that. So, we have an omnibus post of all of the hot... Black Friday deals we found, but a few deals that jumped up at me are some good discounts I saw on DJI drones. So if you're thinking about dipping your toe in the drone water for $3.99, you can now get the Spark, their like entry-level drone. There's also a really nice combo bundle from Teradek. And Red Giant does this insane deal where they give you 40% off and it's combined with other discounts. So if you happen to be a student, and already getting the 50% off, those combined together, not to 90% off, but like the normally $8.99 Magic Bullet bundle, you combine your two discounts and it gets down to like $2.69, which is crazy good. Um, That's December 5th only. So students and teachers out there, go ahead and pre-qualify for your academic discount now because I bet they'll be very busy on that day. And then the last one I want to do a shout out to, there's a really good deal at B&H for a double-sided laser printer from Blackmagic. I've owned three of these. They all still work. I just keep either the business grows or I move to another office or something. And if you're a filmmaker, there's still something great about a physical script. But a double-sided laser printer is like the cheapest and most environmentally friendly way to do that. Uh, Two of the three I've owned, I bought on Black Friday deals in previous years. I don't need one this year. But if you guys are have an upcoming production or you're a screenwriter, it's a really great way to save on printing your scripts. How much does that cost you? Uh, with the extended uh, cartridge, it's 143 at B&H, which is not a terrible deal for a double-sided laser printer. And laser is really great because it's always cheaper per page than inkjet, so you end up saving in the long term. And they last forever. The current one I've had, I've had like five years. I had one of them last 10. Like they just keep going and going. 
Um, all right, up next, Small HD has updated the firmware for their monitors. Uh, it comes with not only a new interface and some customizable settings for false color, but most interestingly, self-calibrating features that are across the board for them. Now, this doesn't mean every monitor in their line is capable of being like super accurately calibrated. There's always going to be some monitors that, no matter how hard you try, do not give you like perfect Rec. 709 color reproduction. Um, if you want something like that, you should look at like their 709 OLED or some of their more accurate, bigger monitors. But even if you can't get them to like perfect Rec. 709 accuracy, you still want to make sure your monitor is as accurate as it can possibly be. So that if you're on set and you're looking at a color and you're like, man, I love the way that red wall looks and you get into post-production and it's orange, you're in trouble. You want an, on, an accurate monitor as often as you can. So... Across the small HD line, you can use the new small HD probe, which is a modified X-Rite. And I'm going to bet that if you already own an X-Rite X1, it'll work with the small HD software. And self-calibrate without any need for a laptop. You put the probe, you plug it into USB, and away you go. Previously, you always needed a separate laptop and software like CalMan or Lightspace, which are great software and probably offer you some more sophisticated tools. But if you're just trying to dip your toe in the waters and have an accurate monitor on set, this is a really exciting firmware upgrade from Small HD. Um, the last bit of news is another story about the FCC, although this one is not nearly as terrifying. It is super important for filmmakers to understand, especially if you own any wireless audio units, especially Sennheiser models. So the FCC not only regulates, like, the Internet, they also regulate the wireless broadband spectrum. And the spectrum is broken up into all these chunks, and different functions are allowed to use different chunks. So all of the video wireless, like Teradek and stuff like that, is all around a certain bandwidth. All of your cell phone is all around a certain bandwidth. All of your home phone, if anybody has like a wireless headset at home anymore is in around a certain bandwidth, Wi-Fi is a certain bandwidth, and wireless audio is a certain bandwidth. But an area, 600 to 700 megahertz, that's traditionally been wireless audio is getting sold to wireless cellular. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Mostly uh, it's because it's really good at penetrating through the walls so a lot of wireless companies like T-Mobile and stuff want to buy it so that they can have better service in buildings and frankly the cell phone frequency band is really full so even though I think this is kind of a cash grab on the FCC's part I also would like more competition in the cell phone space so if T-Mobile buys it all and now has better signal maybe that works out okay in the end um, but it means if you own wireless audio, like a Zaxcom or a Sennheiser or a um, Rode wireless setup, be sure to look at the frequency that's printed on it, because when you buy them, they usually have a frequency. Make sure your frequency is not between 600 and 700. If it is, most manufacturers are having some sort of uh, swap-in, trade-in, replacement system, or they will recalibrate your system for you. The reason why I mentioned Sennheiser is their deadline's the soonest, December 31st, 2017. Other companies are giving you to 2019, but Sennheiser would like you to take care of this soon. So, listeners, if you own a Sennheiser wireless system, I do. please go check and make sure the frequency is not between 600 and 700. And if it is, go to the Sennheiser website and make sure you know how to swap it out. If you bought it recently, like they haven't been selling this for a while, but if you bought it more than a year or two ago, it is definitely worth double-checking because very soon... 
it'll like technically be illegal. And beyond being illegal, you will have a lot more interference problems if you use this frequency uh, once it's been sold off to telecom. I thought that was a crazy part of the story that like starting next year, it's going to be straight up illegal to manufacture or sell any wireless audio equipment that runs in the 600 like band. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those weird things where you're like, but then you remember, like, it does interfere and step on everybody else. So at a certain point, like, that's one of those things where you're like, if if literally we just let anybody use whatever spectrum they want, then some asshole would literally just have, like, a TV channel broadcasting him dancing that would, like, make this whole block only be able to tune into that. And that asshole would be John Fusco. Yeah. I be- hate dancing. Awesome. Um, John Fusco sitting there in front of a green screen while people comp in dancing behind him. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I mean, it's a complicated thing. On the flip side, almost everybody is like when you buy a um, walkie talkie, there's frequently a thing that's like it is illegal to use it in this way. And it's almost always describing the way that everyone all the time uses it. <laughs> so it's there's there's some leeway with wireless. There's some like wiggle room. Um, it's also one of the things, and this is something that uh, can never be reminded enough, traveling internationally with this stuff, different countries regulate their bandwidth differently. So just because your wireless tools are perfectly legal in North America, if you go on a business trip to China and you want to wirelessly mic yourself as you go to your meetings, that band might be used for a different purpose in a different country. Okay, now moving on to Ask No Film School. This week, a guy named Daniel has asked... <laughs> uh, we require real names, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he didn't have a last name. No last name, just Daniel. Daniel last name. So yeah, this week Daniel asked. This is about color spaces, organizing grading, and different outputs and displays. For example, I have a short film shot with Red Scarlet MX. I'm going to make a DCP out of it, but also I want to have it in some video format. So I want to output it in DCI-P3 and Rec 709. Does it mean that I have to do two versions of the grading for each color space? Okay, so before you answer this question, Charles, how about defining these terms, DCI-P3 and REC-709? I think everyone knows what a DCP is. Awesome. Well, I'll go ahead and define everything. So a DCP is a digital cinema package, and it's the way in which you deliver movies to theaters and especially to film festivals, which is the reason why we still hear about them so much. And the reason why they exist, and it's so important that you format them correctly, is if you've ever had that experience where like somebody sent you a video file and you tried to open it on your desktop and it didn't play because you didn't have the right codec installed or something, it's always annoying and you have to go on the internet to figure it out. And if you wanted to do that, like movie theaters don't want to have to do that. So they have a very segmented format that is the way they want to show things. And you never, provided you've mastered properly in DCP, you can send it to any DCP-capable movie theater in the world. They'll pop it in their server, and it'll play, and it'll look great, and it's perfectly, and it's a very controlled system, but it's a very controlled system on purpose. So every once in a while, I hear new filmmakers who are really frustrated where they're like, well, how come I can't get it to play ProRes? I just want to send a ProRes file to the festival. And it's like, well... They might not have Macintosh computers or, you know, they might be working in a multiplex in the middle of nowhere that isn't doesn't even have computers. They just have the server. So DCP is a uniform system that we can guarantee any theater is going to be able to participate with. That's a digital cinema package. It used to be on a hard drive. Now it's sometimes on a thumb drive, but it's a very segmented thing. The DCP is always formatted in a specific color space, which is DCI-P3 which is a big color space, which means there's more options 
for colors that can be shown and reproduced accurately than you might get on a television. The television or the HD television color space is called Rec. 709, and it's a smaller gamut. There's fewer color choices in Rec. 709 than there are in DCI-P3 because it was designed for like 1990s CRT televisions. So it's a smaller thing because it's designed to be broadcast and it's like a smaller array of color options. So if you are most filmmakers, you're going to need a Rec. 709, which is going to look great on Vimeo, which is going to look great on YouTube, which is going to look great when you burn a Blu-ray for relatives who have Blu-ray players. Your Rec. 709 is going to be most of what it's seen. But if you want to do festivals or you have a small theatrical run coming up, you're going to need a DCP, which will be formatted in a completely different color space, DCI-P3. High-end movies that are destined for large theatrical releases do all of their work in DCI-P3, and then they regrade it for your Rec. 709. So they might do three or four weeks of grading in DCI-P3, then they love the look, then they bring that over into a new project in Rec. 709, and they'll do another week or two of grading, literally going shot by shot and looking at it in Rec. 709, and something that might look great in P3, like if you've got Spider-Man or something, and his red outfit looks great in P3, once you bring it into 709, the mapping might not look right, and you have to like regrade to get the red back where you want. That's how big projects do it. Indie projects can almost never afford this. It's a lot of money, it's a lot of hassle, it's a lot of technology. So the vast majority of the time, since their life is online and on disk, most small projects just work in Rec. 709 for the entirety of color grading and post. And then they do a Rec. 709 to P3 conversion step at the end. Technically, you can also master a DCP in Rec. 709, but honestly, I think it's better to master them in P3 because it's more reliable that every theater will accurately show it. Um, if you master your DCP in Rec. 709 and the theater is expecting a P3, they can show it and it'll look terrible. Now, here's the kicker. No matter how tight your budget, find a way to watch the DCP once it's been mastered in P3. If you're in L.A., there's a theater called Downtown Independent, which is a great movie theater with super nice people. And they offer a service where filmmakers can go in on like a Tuesday morning and watch their DCP as a playback check. You're not allowed to like bring an audience, although I did bring my parents once. But it's like a just a way to confidence check and make sure it came out well and it looks right. Um, if you're not in L.A., a lot of local multiplexes will let you in on a slow, like, weekday morning when they're open already but not all the screens are going just as a DCP check, although they'll usually charge a couple hundred bucks. You have to watch it in DCP and P3 to check, right? Most of the software does a really great Rec. 709 to DCI-P3 conversion. There's Open DCP. You can use Easy DCP license with DaVinci Resolve. There's even the ability to convert within DaVinci Resolve from 709 to P3 with a LUT, but you want to check it and make sure. And that is the workflow most of the indies use. Thanks for your question, Mysterious Daniel. And moving on to some excellent indie movies that you can watch during your holiday break. Gillian Robespierre's latest dramedy, Landline, which premiered at Sundance this year, hit Amazon Prime Instant last Friday. If you all remember her hit Obvious Child from a few years ago, this one is similar in its witty, authentic, dialogue-heavy portrayal of everyday human drama. Obvious Child starred Jenny Slate, and so does Landline. This time, Slate plays the big sister to Abby Quinn. Over the course of the film, the sisters uncover the truth behind their father's affair. Probably my favorite acting in the film is actually done by Edie Falco, 
who plays their jilted mom and is just like moving and brilliant. I had Robespierre and her producer and co-writer Elizabeth Holm on the podcast when the film hit theaters in July in an episode called How to Avoid the Sophomore Slump and Make Your Second Feature. In their really entertaining discussion, we talk about everything from peeing in the shower to polyamory, and of course lots of advice about things like how to get authentic performances out of your actors. So we will link to that in the podcast post. This year's big festival buy and one of my favorite films in recent memory is also coming to Amazon Prime Instant. It's The Big Sick, and it should be there tomorrow. Amazon Studios actually acquired it at Sundance for $12 bucks. It was directed by Michael Showalter, produced by Judd Apatow, and it stars Kamel Nunjani, Zoe Kazan, Holly Hunter, Ray Romano, and others. The movie was actually written by Kamel Nunjani and his now-wife, Emily Gordon, and it's a retelling about how they met and fell in love. There's a lot of tension there. It's kind of an unconventional but very sweet love story. Basically, Kamel comes from a traditional Muslim family. Emily comes from a classic all-American white family. So Kamel has to keep their relationship a secret from his traditional parents who are trying to set him up to a marriage with a nice Muslim girl. And Emily's family is also a little concerned about Kamel and his whole behavior around the relationship. So when she's waylaid by a mysterious illness, he has to take charge of the crisis with her parents. Everybody bonds. And, you know, as we all know, they get married in the end. We should also mention that this film was nominated for two Film Independent Spirit Awards earlier this week for Best for Screenplay and Best Supporting Female for Holly Hunter, who plays Emily's mom. And coming to Netflix on November 24th is Bushwick. This is one of the most insane midnight movies I saw on the festival circuit this year. I saw it at Sundance. And the premise, I guess, for a neo-civil war film in America may have seemed more insane a decade ago when directors Jonathan Milow and Carrie Murnian first came up with it, but now it doesn't seem so far-fetched, unfortunately. Brittany Snow plays Lucy, a student on her way home to Bushwick while on break from grad school. She gets off the subway at the beginning of the film, only to realize that her Brooklyn neighborhood is under siege from an unknown enemy. Later on in the film, it is revealed that Texas and a handful of other states have seceded from the Union and are the force behind the attack. With the help of Stoop, a former Marine played by Dave Bautista, they attempt to fight their way through the city to safety. For Malo and Murnian, the road to making Bushwick was paved by a ton of hard work and self-education, as neither of them went to film school, but through a series of successful short film competitions, they were able to capture the eye of a producer at South by Southwest. That led to a directing gig on the 2014 horror comedy Cooties. You should listen to the podcast I did with the two of them about this film back at Sundance. It's called A Civil War in Bushwick, Getting Your Film Made from Pitch to Production. Coming to HBO, or rather an app store near you via HBO, is the latest experiment from serial experimenter Steven Soderbergh. His latest project, Mosaic, is an interactive miniseries created for HBO that takes the form of an app, where audiences can experience the same murder mystery from multiple character perspectives, playing out in what are called chapters that range from 8 to 38 minutes long. It's available now for iOS with Android coming soon. I wrote up a post about it from Soderbergh's talk at the Future of Storytelling event. It was interesting to hear about how a traditional filmmaker approached interactive storytelling. The script ultimately ended up being around 700 pages. What do you think of that, John? Pretty short. (laughs) And their script supervisor had to develop a software program just to track everything that they were doing since each scene was shot over and over again from so many different perspectives. 
I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the experience, so tweet at me if you check it out. And finally, in theatrical releases this week, one of the big nominees in the recently announced Film Independent Spirit Awards is coming to theaters tomorrow. Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name was nominated for Best Feature, Best Director, Best Supporting Male, Best Cinematography, and Best Editing. So yeah, it's pretty good. You might remember me talking about this film a couple months ago in our New York Film Festival episode. It was probably my favorite film there. Uh, it's based, by the way, on Andre Asimon's popular novel, and in it, breakout talent Timothy Chalamet plays Elio, a teenage boy spending a languid summer in Italy with his parents and a slightly older graduate student who comes to assist his father on a research project. The student, played by Army Hammer, soon becomes more than a friend to Elio as the two begin a passionate affair. So the film took place in the 80s and it easily could have been about politics, but it's not about politics. It's about that searing, beautiful, gut-wrenching pain and pleasure of first love. It was shot just beautifully and lushly by a name I always have trouble with, Sayambu Muktipram, uh, who shot the Palm d'Or winning Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives. The film also has an original score by indie folk hero Sufjan Stevens. So overall, it really feels poised to enter the canon of great gay and mainstream cinema alike. I wrote up a really great press conference with the director where he talks about the production, one of the most incredible aspects of which is that it was shot during one of the rainiest summers Italy has ever seen, and 28 of their 34 shooting days were in heavy rain. The crazy part is the film appears to take place entirely on sunny days. It looks like a sun-drenched, you know, lazy summer. So I gotta say it was quite a feat of movie magic. And now moving on to grant deadlines. The SF Film Westridge grants have a deadline February 2018, but the first window for this new grant opened last week. It's aimed at independent narrative feature films. They will award four to five grants of twenty dollars to $25,000 each spring and fall. And the new grant was created to support the screenwriting and development phases of U.S.-based films that focus on what SF Film describes as significant social issues and questions of our time. In addition to the cash grants, recipients will also receive various benefits through SF Film's Artist Development Program, as well as support and feedback. Grantees will also get the opportunity to spend a week in the Bay Area attending a programmed retreat geared towards honing their craft and making connections in the industry. The inaugural winners will be announced in May 2018. And past recipients of grants include Fruitvale Station, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Short Term 12, and Patty Cakes. So there's some pretty good alum there. And now moving to festival deadlines. The Phoenix Film Festival has a deadline on November 24th. This is the late deadline. It takes place in Phoenix from April 5th to the 15th, 2018, and has been named one of the 25 coolest film festivals and a top 50 worthy entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine. It's Arizona's largest film festival, which screens over 150 films, holds amazing parties, and provides filmmaking seminars to capacity audiences of over 25,000. The Omaha Film Festival has a deadline on November 27th. This is your last chance to apply with the extended deadline. The festival takes place in Omaha, Nebraska from March 6th to the 11th, 2018. Last year, over $32,000 in prizes were given to winning filmmakers, which is a lot of money. In addition, there is a screenplay competition component to the festival, and it is one of the top 100 best-reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway. And finally, the Brooklyn Film Festival has a deadline on November 30th. This is the early bird deadline. It takes place June 1st to the 10th, 2018 in Brooklyn, New York. And it's a cool festival. It's really one of the first of its kind in New York City. 
since it's been running for 21 years now, way longer than the Tribeca Film Festival. In addition to their lineup of films, the festival also hosts multiple filmmaker parties and networking events at venues around Brooklyn and New York City. Many of the award-winning films from the Brooklyn Film Festival have gone on to have theatrical releases, to have nationwide broadcasts on PBS and HBO, and to be nominated and awarded at both the British and the American Academy Awards. I was actually one of three jury members to judge their narrative shorts earlier last year, well, I guess it was earlier this year in June. So if you're submitting a short to this festival, hey, I might just judge you too. And now for the weekly words of wisdom. I spoke last week about the theatrical release of the gorgeous animated film The Breadwinner, and in my interview with the director Nora Tuomi, I mentioned that I cried during the film and asked her how she made animated characters so emotionally relatable. Then she mentioned that she herself cried several times during Almost every phase of production, the research stage, the storyboard stage, the voice recording, the editing, the animation. And she added, quote, As a director, you have to believe in your own characters and story. If you can't convince yourself that the drawings on the screen are real people that you care about, you can't expect an audience to do so. I think this applies to, you know, narrative features of any type and documentaries too, just any kind of storytelling, right? She also added, Everyone on your team has slightly different sensibilities, so at the end of the day, you have to pitch the film toward yourself and hope that as a storyteller, you've listened and absorbed enough to communicate the essence of characters' lives. She also gave a pro tip that I think I'm going to employ in my own practice. She said, quote, I sit with audiences as often as I can and try to gauge their responses to our work. Then, when I'm on the next project, I press play at the edit machine as we storyboard, and I imagine myself back with an audience in an auditorium, and I let that feeling guide me as a director. And my words of wisdom come from an article that Dylan Dempsey wrote earlier this week called A No Bullshit Guide to Getting Your Film Seen in 2018. The article breaks down a series of talks he went to at Doc NYC, which covered the state of the industry, especially in distribution and marketing. The first couple points he recalls remind me of a conversation that I had with a friend actually a couple nights ago. This friend of mine, Tom Kamei, is a childhood friend who now lives in NYC and was featured on Forbes 30 Under 30 for finance last week. So he's a pretty impressive and smart dude. Uh, And he knew a lot more about film than I thought that he'd know. (laughs) So he mentioned how filmmakers are kind of having a moment right now in terms of indie directors getting to put out their stuff in many, many different places. And I argued that in actuality, this was making things harder for filmmakers to get their films seen through all the other content. In his article, Dylan recalls how marketing strategist Brian Newman said, It's the worst of times and the best of times. He waxed eloquent on the state of the industry. Basically, we're fucked. It's an age of abundance, meaning it's that much harder to break through the noise and get your film noticed. Newman proceeded to outline the statistics. This past year, a whopping 170 documentaries qualified for the Oscars. Most of them will go straight to digital. Every week, approximately 27 films open in theaters just in NYC alone. Even worse, filmmakers have to compete with rival sources of entertainment from social media to video games. With most eyes on smartphones, today's audiences have a shorter attention span and a lot more to watch. 300 hours of video is uploaded to YouTube every week, Newman told the audience, almost in disbelief. Algorithms now matter more than reviews. Opinions no longer count. Ariana Boko, EVP of Acquisitions and Productions for IFC Films and Sundance Selects, disagreed, countering, It's good to have more buyers. There will always be new companies coming in, creating new methods of distribution, new ways for filmmakers to get their stuff seen, but it's only good if you adapt your content to suit. 
So there's not really an answer for me and my friend in terms of is this good, is this bad? But one thing's for sure, the industry is changing and filmmakers are in a strange spot. So we've covered some dark stuff and some uncertain times in this episode, but it is Thanksgiving and I still have so much to be grateful for. I think John and I both want to thank you all so much. Thank you, listeners. Those of you who are tuning in every week, who've subscribed, who've rated us with those, you know, nice nice comments and five stars on iTunes. It really, really means a lot and keeps us going. Um, and even, you know, when you stay in touch and when you let us know what you think, it's uh, it's been really a pleasure to get to know some of you. Um, and of course, I want to give a special thanks to you, John Fusco. Uh, you know, I'm always glad that you're around, but uh, in these past couple months, since Emily has departed and then come back as a freelance zombie, yeah, um, you've really stepped up, and uh, I'm just so grateful that you've been around and working on the podcast and doing the social media and all the stuff that you bring to the table. So thank you. Ah, oh, thanks. Thank you too, Liz, for being for being a good boss. <laughs> cool. Um, so. Next Monday's podcast is coming up, and it's my second roundtable from Doc NYC, America's largest documentary film festival, which I gave a field report from on last week's Indie Film Weekly. I am really excited about Monday's episode because it's honestly a resource I wish I had had when I was starting my filmmaking career. I have three very experienced award-winning producers and directors with films at Doc NYC, giving like an A to Z of documentary production and discussing what a successful producer's role is at every stage of a film's life. So tune in on Monday if you want to know what really goes into getting a doc made and out into the world. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we talked about on this show and this week's podcast post and of course... New articles every day about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. And we hope that you will stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim on Twitter. I'm not going to do it because it's Thanksgiving and I want you to be happy. Thank you. <laughs> Charles is at Charles Hain and we are all at No Film School. Happy Turkey Day. See you next week. <laughs>